Hope you're doing well. We're going to be in the book of Titus today. We've got two more messages. If you haven't been with us, um, or if you have, we've been walking through the book of Titus verse by verse, and we'll be in Chi- Titus chapter 2, verse 15, but we're actually going to bump up and, uh, and read uh, some of the verses prior to that, starting in verse 11, to kind of set the stage here. Um, I wanted to say, you know, really, your expectation level, in a lot of ways, determine what you're going to get out of things. Let me give you an example. If you take your kid to a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese, and I know that may sound like terrible, a terrible thing to you, but if you take a kid, grandchild, or a kid to Chuck E. Cheese for a party, and you assume that the people throwing the party are going to have tokens, okay, for your kids to play, or at least a power card, or however they're doing it nowadays, and you show up, and you find out that's not the case, that they were planning on the parents purchasing the tokens for their kids, and you show up with no money and no tokens, you and your kid are going to have a really bad time. You know why? Because they're going to be like, everybody's playing skee-ball, and you're going to be like, sit still, okay? They're going to be playing all their games, and you're going to miss it. Another way to think about it, if you go to a buffet like Golden Corral, and you forget your dentures, that's bad. And the chocolate fountain's broke, so you can't even enjoy that, all right? So if without, without that preparation, you can't enjoy. Or it's like this, showing up at a pizza buffet with no money. If you're not prepared, you are not going to get any good out of that. And there's so many ways that we come to, we we approach life and we're not prepared. Give you an example. Take the difference between a week where you, before you go into the week, you know what your plan's going to be. You got your clothes laid out. You got your week laid out. How much better those weeks usually go than the ones where you just like, it's Monday, I'm late, I don't have anything ready. Usually that starts your week on a trajectory. So preparation and expectancy and being ready can make a huge difference. And so today, as we look at this, what Titus is, what Paul's been doing for Titus is he's been instructing this man on how to organize the church and how to conduct the the meet the business of the church and the worship of the church in such a way that people would be ready for good works they would know the right doctrine and know how to live and so i want to to venture this and put this out here today as we look at this passage i think it's teaching us how we ought to come to church and how we ought to leave to church how we ought to leave church we should come to church with an expectancy and we, sh- we, should relieve, we should leave church with a renewed love. We should come to church with an expectancy, and we should leave church with a renewed openness. And I want to show you this in Titus chapter 2. Now, we're going to start in verse Titus chapter 2, verse 11. We're going to backtrack just a bit. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Our blessed hope, the appearance, and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Verse 15. Titus, declare these things. Let it be known. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them, the people in the church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all. 
For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient. We were led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were passing our days in malice and envy. We, hated, we were hated by others and we were hating one another. But the, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, no, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the promise of eternal life. Now he tells us things. He goes and he talks about the gospel and he says, you, since you have been saved, since the grace of God's appeared and saved you, it's also training you to live a holy life. And Paul would tell Titus in verse 15, declare these things. What does it mean to declare something? To say it, to speak it. He is writing to a church leader, right? And his job, Titus's job is to install other elders or church leaders in the church and to help guide the worship and the ministry of these local churches on Crete to look to in such a way to guide these ministries in such a way for godliness to transpire for holiness to be seen in the lives of those there in the church and so here is what he is saying. This should be a common practice. Here's an imperative, a command for Titus to do. Declare these things. Now, when you see these things, where would you go to find out what these things are? Either the next sentence or the one before it. We just read. And it's talking about the gospel and it's talking about the implications of the gospel, which is Jesus' finished work, his death, burial, resurrection on the behalf of sinners and those who would believe. And that being applied to the way that now we are not only supposed to believe the right thing, but God's grace is training us to do the right thing for God's glory and for other people. And so here is what Titus is saying. When, or Paul is saying to Titus, you need to continually declare amongst the people of God the good news of the gospel and what and all that it means for your life. And so when you come to church, there's some things that you should expect, okay? Hopefully you should expect to be greeted, but before you do that, you should probably expect to greet someone else, all right, as well. All right, don't remember, don't forget that you also have a part in the ministry too, not just to be minister to, but to be a minister. But also when you come to church, you should expect an elder teacher, or if it's, if it's in a smaller group gathering of the church, like at a Bible study or a small group or a prayer gathering, you should expect someone to declare and teach truth, the truth, truth of the gospel. Now, if you, that's what you need to understand. The, one of the reasons we devote so much time in our worship services to the teaching and preaching of God's word is because it's called for in the scriptures. I know that's a big, that's like a big one. Like, oh, hey, why you do that? Because the Bible tells us to do that, okay? So that's why we do it. And so you should want to and, and you should expect to be a part of a fellowship in which the truth of the gospel, the scriptures are taught regularly, emphatically, truthfully, with integrity. All of those things need to be taking place in the church. And so you need to come ready for that. It's almost like when I was a kid, you may have been through this. We, I'd have, I'd get, we'd have children's church and then we had to go to big church. 
which is what we make the kids do on Family Sunday. We make them come to big church. And sometimes coming to big church is, it was dreaded as a kid. I'm just being honest with you, okay? And I, because I didn't get it. And then when we did, when we were in, I didn't understand why we were doing it. And then we would do it and we would sing the songs and I could, you know, hang with that for a minute. And then the guy, the pastor would get up and talk. And I knew I loved my pastor, but I didn't really care to listen to my pastor. Okay. And it wasn't because, and I've had some great pastors as a kid. Thank God for them. And they, they were good preachers. I just was not tuned to that. And I wasn't even expecting that. And I wasn't coming in ready to listen to that. I didn't have any frame of reference for that. And so it was almost like every Sunday I was surprised that we did the same thing every time. Oh, again, again, you're going to sing and you're going to pray. You're going to take the offering and we're going to do the Lord's Supper. And then you guys are going to talk forever. And then we're going to sing another song and then we're going to leave. And I, I don't know. I'm looking out here and everybody's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And maybe, maybe you don't, maybe you do, but that's how I lived. And I, and part of that when I was a kid is I didn't have the frame of reference to understand how much I needed God's word. Also, I needed God's, God's work in my life to change me to know that I, to have actually have a taste for God's word. But I also say this, I don't know if, if anybody ever told me that this is what we do and this is why we do it. I'm not sure if that would have helped, but it couldn't have hurt. And so here's the thing, just so you're not going to be surprised, every Sunday we're going to sing and we're going to pray and we're going to study the Bible together and we're going to hear the Bible preached. Do you know why? Because that's what God told us to do in the scriptures and that's how God moves his people and works in his people's life. So that's going to happen. So we can do one of two ways. You can be like the kid, and you, you have, there's sophisticated versions of being a kid. You know that, right? You, you, you get that. Because, like, when you're whiny as a kid, your, your parents are like, suck it up, stop whining. But as an adult, we have to, like, we have to humor each other when we're complaining about jobs and stuff like that. Like, well, they're just having a real hard time. And like, it could be you're a whiner. Okay, I mean, that just could be the, the situation. I say that in Jesus' name because it can be said about me. Ask my wife. I had the flu this week. Whiner central. Okay, I had man flu, which is worse than, than a regular person's flu because oh, man, I feel so bad. Okay. When we get to this point and we look at, at this situation, since... Church is going to go like that. You can make the most of it, or you can be like the kids with no tokens, unprepared and missing out on all the fun and the goodness. What I mean by that is the way you approach the script, you approach Sunday morning, the way you approach your small group, if you come with an expectancy to hear, that you need the word of God preached to you, and you need to know the truth, and you need to be dialed in, and you need to go after it yourself. You need God's truth in your life, and it should be declared to you, and it will be declared to you, and you come ready for that. You get a notebook. You get, your, you get a copy of God's word. You get ready. You remove distractions. You silence the phone. You, you dial in. You resist the urge to check your watch. You resist the urge to, to, to zone out. You resist those things because you know that it is good to be sitting underneath the preaching and teaching of God's word. That's what he's calling Titus to do.
And so I want to call it wherever stage of life you're in, whether you're a kid or you're a teenager, you're an adult, whether you are a new believer, you've been a believer for a while, whatever, how you approach church and how you approach the Sunday morning declaration of God's word will make a difference in your spiritual life. Paul has spent a ton of time in this book about talking about putting elders, teachers in the church to pastor and to preach and teach the right thing. And he's also giving time to make sure that it's declared all the time, regularly in the church. That is what it's supposed to be. So we should give our attention to God's word. And that means actually dialing in to ask questions, to read it thoroughly, to work on it. Most of you, if you had a problem, you would work very diligently to solve that problem. Gentlemen, if you couldn't fix something at your house, you know what you're probably going to do? You're not going to ask somebody right away. You're going to go to YouTube. At least that's what I do. And you're not going to admit defeat (laughs) until you've spent hundreds of dollars, if you're like me. I tried to fix my lawnmower one time. I bought all these tools. And after spending all that money, I drove it to the lawnmower guy. You know why? Because I'm a guy. <laughs> and that's what I did. We will spend all of that time working to, do, to fix a problem. But we will not invest what it costs to know God's word. And there is a cost to it. There is some work to it. There is a, a disciplining yourself to hear God's word that's involved. Paul commands Titus, declare these things, the good news. You need it. We need regularly meeting together, regularly being together, whether it's in a big group church or small groups. We need God's word taught. We need us to go at it because that is where God works in our lives. And not only that, should we be open to the declaration of God's word? We should also see this. It says, declare, verse 15 says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. Now, Titus can do this because it's talking about there's the idea of spiritual leadership, that spiritual leadership exists in the church through people who are, who are we talked about the, they, they, they fulfill the requirements of elders. Their life and their doctrine match up with scripture. Not perfectly, but they are men that you could say, yes, they're following the Lord. And so Paul is saying, Titus, no one disregards your authority. Teach the word, and that that gives you your authority. And then he says this to him, exhort and rebuke. You probably have not used the word exhort or the word rebuke this week. If you have, I'd like to hear about it after the service because you probably had an interesting week, okay? The word exhort really means to call up alongside. It has the idea of strongly encouraging or urging someone to do something. Not only are you coming to hear the good news proclaimed when you come to, to church or when you gather with your small group, whenever you're at a church gathering, you don't just hear the word proclaimed, the teaching about Christ proclaimed. You also are called to do something every time. When you come to a worship service, there is a call for you to do something, a call for you to make a change, a call for you to start doing something you are not doing. There's a call. There's a call like today. The call is to come in prepared for worship by being ready with God's word, by getting your notebook, by being ready to take notes, by diving into your Bible, by making sure you have a Bible that you can read well, by doing all those things. And so there's an exhortation here to come that. There's also an exhortation to get get ready and know that teaching and preaching is going to happen, so be ready for it. Okay? 
Like, get in that, if you have problems, going to sleep while it's happening, okay? I'll work on my end, okay? You work on your end. Drink some extra coffee, all right? And, and so there's some things exhorting you to do this, okay? To, to come alongside. In a minute, I'm going to exhort you to be a gracious person because of God's amazing grace. That's a calling to do something. But also, when you come to the scriptures and you hear them taught, there won't be just a call to do something. There will be a call to stop doing other things, so it's kind of like, just do it, don't do it, okay? When you hear the Bible taught, okay, in Scripture, every time we get together in a gathering, you're going to be here, do this, just do this. But you're also going to hear, don't do that. And the reason's going to be because of Jesus and the gospel. And re- that's what a rebuke is, is stop doing it. It means an expression of sharp disapproval and criticism. Yesterday, I was at a basketball game for my son. There is this kid who, during the basketball game, would come from the other court. And if, you, if, you're parent, if you're the parent or the guardian of this kid, I love you in Jesus' name, and I love this kid, but I wanted to pun him in Jesus' name, okay? Because here's what he would do. He would jump in the – the game was going on. They would be at the other end of the court. He would come down and start shooting on the basketball goal that the game was being played on. And I'm looking at the kid. I'm like, what's your problem? It's a game. And he's like, <laughs> okay. And I was having to keep down the inner like prophet in me, be like, son, what are you doing? Okay, I mean, like, I, like, I was like, get off my lawn, welled up for the first time in my life. Okay, I was like, I mean, I'm getting old. I was like, get off my lawn, stop that. Okay. He needed his parents to go, stop being an idiot. You realize you need that in your life, right? You realize you need people in your life and you need the word of God to tell you, stop being an idiot. This is wrong. This relationship you're in is ungodly. Sexual desire outside of God's plan is wrong. This relationship is going to ruin you. Your greed is going to ruin you. Your people-pleasing at the expense of honoring God will mess you up. Your idolatry will lead you to a point where you're going to worship things of the world and you're going to forget about God. You need the word of God and you need people in your life who follow God to be like, stop being an idiot. My dog, speaking of idiots, um, my dog is one of those dogs who has been a great dog, but she's also, I guess she reflects her owner. We went one time to the beach, and this is the first time she was on the beach. This is when I lived in, and we lived in Florida. And she was thirsty because it was, we were on the beach, and it's always humid in Florida. I don't know if you've ever been, but it's like America's basement. Damp, hot basement, okay? And so we were down there, and we were taking her out. And so you know what she saw? She saw the water. And she's like, I'm thirsty. So we're trying to pull her back because we know what's going to happen. Do you know in the ocean, it's salt water. If you haven't been, it's salty. You're going to be shocked, okay? And so you're gonna, she, she dove in and we fought, she pulled on the leash and she was strangling herself. And she finally, and she finally got to the water and we're like, well, she's going to learn a lesson. So she pushes her head in and she's like, <gasps> okay? And she comes back up and she's like, <gasps> like she realizes immediately 
that my, her thirst has not been satiated, but it's worse. And then this foam started appearing on her mouth and you could just, people around were like, you got a rabbit dog on the beach. I'm like, mind your business. And then the dog jumped back in the water. She's like, I got to get this thirst over with. And we let it happen more times than we should have. She learned a lesson that day. And thankfully our car didn't have upholstery. So it was all wiped down. But that is what sin is like. That's why I'm saying don't be an idiot, because sin is idiotic. We think it is good. And there's a way that seems right to a man, and then there's the Lord's way. And sin is so idiotic because it makes us think we're doing something good, like the dog trying to drink salt water, thinking it would satisfy, but it won't. And that's why you need somebody in love and in Jesus' name to tell you you're being an idiot. And you have to stop with these behaviors. And so we have to come to church ready to hear, ready to move, to to do things we are not doing, to be called to that, and then to be called out on our sin and be ready to change and stop and to turn away from it, to repent and come back. That is what Paul is calling Titus to do, and that is what we should come to expect and to be at the church. And so that's going to require us to lower our defenses and to be ready, be humble to let God speak to us. Do you realize this? I need this. You need this. You need God to speak in your life far more than you understand. You need God to show you your sin. You need God to show you where you're deficient. We don't like to see sin. We don't like to see where we're deficient. But here's the good news. God is so gracious. He doesn't do that just to go like, ha ha, you're not good. Ha ha, you don't measure up. Ha ha, look at the sin. God shows us those things so he can bring us closer to him and could bring us to a place of greater holiness and a life more abundant. That's what you expect when you come to church. And also, you should expect reminders. If you look down with me in chapter 3, and I know you're thinking, oh my gosh, we just made it through the first verse. It's okay. It gets a little quicker from here. Titus chapter 3 verse 1 says this, remind them, the people in the church, to be submissive to rulers. Now, this word remind here is a continual reminding, like continually remind. If you ever come to church, you're going to hear the same refrain a lot. You're going to hear about Christ and his finished work and about faith and about his grace and about his love. And then you're going to hear about the the consequence of that and how we ought to live according. There's going to be a repetition. Do you know why there's a repetition? It's because we hear and often forget as soon as right after we've heard it. There's a famous story about Luther's barber. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he had a barber who would cut his hair. Okay, that's what barbers do and give him a shave. And he would go and see the barber, and finally, the barber comes to him as the story goes. And I don't know if this story is true or apocryphal, but it's a great story either way. The barber comes to him and says, hey, pastor, are you going to just like, every Sunday, you just preach the gospel to us. Every Sunday, you just preach the gospel to us. Like, when are you going to get to a place where you preach something else? And he said, I'll preach something else when you come in looking like a people who believe the gospel. And the barber went back about his business. (laughs) Because how quickly do we forget the good news 
How quickly do we go back trying to justify ourselves through our own works or through some religious ritual and not thinking about the finished work of Christ? How often do we know how we, how do we, we know mentally how we ought to behave, but then our life is so out of sorts that we, how much do we need that reminder and that recalibration of God to get us right back? And so we hear reminding. So the, the idea of remind here is a continue, continue to remind them to do what? To be submissive to rulers, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And their reminders here are not to how they should live in the church community, but how they should live by, in view of outsiders. And so we see here that the people are to be reminded, the people of God in the church at Crete, are reminded that they need to be submissive to, rule, be submissive to rulers and authority. Not when they contradict God's law, but, God has put, but recognizing that God has put rulers and authorities over us in political powers and other things, and we ought to be, as far as it depends on being faithful to Christ, we should be in submission to them. Also, it, says, it tells us to be obedient, which means to follow the laws. That means to be ready for every good work, to not only be obedient, but to be ready, to be actively prepared to do every good work. And not just in front of the authorities, but also for all people. Look in verse two, it says this, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Now, here's the idea. The idea is when you come to church, you should be hearing the truth proclaimed, the truth of the gospel proclaimed. You should be prepared for that. You should also come be, being ready to be exhorted to call to do something. You also should be ready to be rebuked in Jesus' name by somebody who has the authority teaching from the authoritative word of God. That should be whatever we gather together, whether it's in a big group or small group, we should expect that. We should also be expected to be reminded of our behavior, especially as our behavior relates and is seen by the outside world. And when we leave this place, when we come, we should come expecting all those things to hear the teaching and to be exhorted and to be rebuked. But we also should be, have a mind for when we leave this place and what we've heard that we might love other people because he talks here about being a submission to authorities. And in verse two, he says, speak evil of no one. This is outside of the church too, to say nothing evil about anybody. That doesn't necessarily mean you can't have a, a, a real conversation about issues, but you know the difference between really talking about something and really talking about somebody, right? If... Your conversation about, or about an issue starts off with, did you hear about so-and-so? You are likely about to engage in a character assassination. And you want to know something? There is something bad that can be said about every one of us in this room. And there is a bunch of people in this room that you could say something, or in this room and outside this room that you could say something bad about too, I know. But the scriptures call us not to, not to act on those impulses or those feelings and to keep our lives and our mouths full of good things and not evil things. And so you might have to practice. This may be somewhere you struggle. This may be where we're rebuking you today and exhorting you to do something different. You might need to work and just take note this week of where you're talking about people and you're doing this in an ugly way. And you might need to start saying good things. And then you might need to get down to the, the, the facts of why am I saying bad things? Oftentimes, 
We speak evil of someone to make ourselves feel and look better. Just think about that for a minute. And we go on and we see this, that we should avoid quarreling, which means we shouldn't fight. We shouldn't be angry. We shouldn't go in ready to, 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 to scrap with whoever we got around us. That should not be how we operate. Which some people, they walk into a place ready to scrap. You ever been with somebody at a restaurant and you just know that they're going to just hate on the waiter from the second that waiter shows up? Because the waiter's maybe not doing their best. The waiter's looking pretty jacked. Waiter showed up late. Waiter didn't bring the water. Waiter didn't do whatever, okay? And that person's like, here's your tip. Every time you do something wrong, I'm going to take a dollar off the table. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Man, like, there's a little, little grace here. And so you see that person, they're ready to fight. Or that person, like somebody steps in front of them in line, they're like, oh, no, they did. Okay, there's people in life that have this quarreling, this quarreling nature to themselves. And that Paul says, no, that should not be how we should not try to pick a fight. Believers, you are not supposed to pick a fight with lost people. They're lost. They don't know Jesus. You do, but not because you're good, but because he's good. And so our fight is not with those who are lost, but with the devil and his minions. You don't have to go to war with the person who disagrees with you. In fact, we are actually to go to love for them. That's what he's calling us to. Don't just, and this says to be gentle, which means to treat other people, to see other people with the same love and the same grace that you would want people to see you with. To know that there's something going on in their life because there's definitely something going on in your life. And then it says to show perfect courtesy to all people, which is a sum up way to say, live your life in such a way that you show God's grace to those around you. And just to prove that that is the point, look at what Paul does. He outlines the gospel in the next verses. And so this is where we're, this is where we're going to just camp for a second. Look in verse three, it says this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating, hated by others and hating one another. And so Paul lays out, and he does this a lot of times in the scripture. He talks about who we used to be before Jesus appeared in our lives and before the grace of God appeared in our lives. And then he talks about the grace that comes after. And so here's what I want you to get from this verse and see is we can show perfect courtesy to people and we can show grace to people because the gospel reminds us that we have a past. And that we can't be self-righteous or morally superior because we got a past. You may know people with a past. You know what I mean. The people that you find out what they did and you'd be like, dang. Okay. You know, a guy who used to, I mean, I've met guy, guys who used to ride with the Hell's Angels. I met guys who, I know guys that used to be drug dealers. I got friends of mine who used to be huge stoners and Jesus saved them and they still bear some of those marks and they're still a little nutty but man they love Jesus now 
But you know what? I find that those people who have and understand their past and the great sin which God has redeemed them from are some of the finest Christians I know and who love people in such a remarkable way, even really hard to love people because they have no basis for moral superiority because they remember that they have a past. And that's the gospel reminds us that we have a past because what do you see in verse three? We ourselves, not you, not you people or those people. The gospel starts with we ourselves and he goes on a list of sins. We're going to walk through them. We were once foolish. That we did foolish things. We were disobedient to God and other people and our parents and everybody. We were led astray. We followed, God, we followed Satan's paths. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. It also says that we, were, we passed our days in malice, which means we had anger and resentment towards other people and towards God. And we envied, which we, we wanted what other people had to the point of we wanted to hurt them to get it. We were hated by others and hating one another. Now, if you're in here and you're saying like, man, my life before Christ wasn't that bad, you don't understand something here. It doesn't matter if you acted on those things. Your heart was a cesspool. Your heart apart from the saving work of Christ. Maybe God gave you good parents or sense enough not to act out on your malice in your heart or your envy, or he gave some restraining influence of a coach or sports to keep you from doing that. But know this, our hearts are septic tanks apart from God. And we have no moral superiority over anyone because the Bible talks about all of us as being sinners. And if we are honest with ourselves, even though this might not apply to how we've acted outwardly, and we may not be led astray outwardly, but it could definitely be applied inwardly. Because if we're honest, we all know we are broken by sin. And here is where the gospel starts, is you once were this. And if you once were that, then you can have great compassion and you can look on others with compassion because you know the struggle is real. That's why Jesus was such a great and compassionate high priest is because he was tempted in every way like us because he was fully God and he was fully man. He knew what it meant to be tired. He knew what it meant to be tempted to be cranky. He knew what it meant to be sick. He knew all of those things, but he was without sin, but he could be so compassionate because he knew his situation. So I want you to get this. The gospel, it kills our moral superiority. And that's the number one thing that keeps us from loving people outside the church is a, a feeling like we have to keep somehow be self-righteous and morally superior to them. And the answer is no. The gospel says, no, you were once like this. But here's the good news. Verse five, verse four, but this is how you once were, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, when it showed up, when the light broke through in the darkness, he saved us. So who's doing the saving? Did we save ourselves? No. God is the one who saved us, rescued us. Why? Not because of works done in righteousness. The gospel reminds us that we are saved. We are undeserving of salvation, but God finds us and he comes and gets us and he saves us when we were undeserving. 
Not when we were doing righteous things while we're enemies. He comes and he, he just shows up and he appears with all this goodness. And it's not because of anything we've done, but it's according to his mercy. He looks on us and he, wants, he has pity on us. And then it says this, he works these miracles. And it says, by the washing of regeneration. Now, first off, when you hear the word washing, you need to think of cleansing, right? What, how many of you ever washed clothes before, okay? All the moms in here are like, I'll wash them all day long, okay? The, the, some of you guys may do it too, but I'm one of those guys, and I put everything in the, the washing machine, colors and lights at the same time, and it doesn't always work out very well. And so I've kind of been banned from doing most of the laundry. Um, and maybe not banned, it's just not a good idea. And... Um, so when you're talking about washing, if you wash correctly, your clothes are going to be more or less dirty after they come out of the washing machine. Less. So washing has the idea of removing of filth. And so when, when God our Savior appeared bringing salvation, it wasn't because of anything we, done, we had done. He comes in, and what does he do with all that filth? It is washed away. Well, how? By this word regeneration, which means of making us alive. So there is a combination here in this passage at least where you see when God comes and he appears in your life with his grace, he not only washes away your sin, but he also brings you to life. Which is just awesome. God is bringing life out of our filth and makes us a new creation. Not deserved. And then... It says, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't even just leave us there at the place where we've been washed of sin and then made alive. Then he brings the Holy Spirit to renew us and to help that that dead corpse that we were to now function as in our new life. That's what God does. He meets us in our death and he brings life and cleansing and he continually renews us. And then it says this, and it's through the Holy Spirit of God, which he gives every believer that this occurs. And then it says this, and this is so, so, seven, so that being justified by his grace. And so God doesn't just appear and give us undeserving love and wash us and make us alive and then give us the spirit to be made new. He also justifies us, which means this. We are declared 100% righteous. When God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. We have been given a righteousness, a standing before God that is not ours. It is from God. And then that righteousness resounds to this, that we have become heirs, which means now we are adopted into his family and we have a hope of eternal life. Now, that's a couple of verses that just goes, bam. Look at how much God has given when we deserved so much wrath because of the way we used to live. And I want you to get this. How can we show this love for outsiders that Paul talks about, this perfect courtesy to all? It's through the gospel. Because the gospel shows us that we got a past and we have no moral superiority or claim. 
And it shows us God's amazing grace that he loved us and he's given us all these things, a new life, a new heart, justification, the spirit working in us. He's given us all those things. And let me tell you this, amazing grace makes people amazingly gracious. Let me just say that again. Amazing grace makes people amazingly gracious. Every church in the world needs to hear that. Amazing grace, which is the grace that we just talked about. You were once this, and now you are this, and he's given you all this stuff, and you're indwelt, and you got all this, and you're a son, and you're right, and it wasn't anything you did, and he came, and he saved, and the regeneration was the washing of your sins and the new life. It's all his good work. It's all his graciousness. It's not deserved in any way. It's all, it's just the sovereign work of grace. It's so amazing. And when we are amazing grace people, we should be amazingly gracious to other people. Because I want you to get something. When someone has experienced great love, they are capable of great love. When someone has experienced great grace, they are capable of extending great grace and to loving those who are hard to love. There may be people that you can rightfully speak evil against. You can rightly go to war with. You can rightfully be rude to because they're rude and they're hateful. But you can look beyond their behavior and you can see their need for Christ. And you can remember your need for Christ. And you can remember at that point of need for Christ, he came and he just gave you everything. He just, he didn't, he didn't spurn you. He didn't say, you got to get your act together. He said, son, come home and we'll work from here. And that is amazing grace makes people amazingly gracious. There's this syndrome that after communism fell in orphanages in Romania and throughout the former Soviet Union, there was this, um, there was all these orphans that had been basically left uh, they would they would get very little human interaction. And so these orphanages would be filled with kids and not a kid would cry because they had been neglected to such a point they knew their cries were just wasting their val- valuable energy. And they laid in these situations and they there's this disorder that came about that many of them can't reciprocate and attach to other people, especially adults because they had been so abused and neglected. And like, so most kids, if you give them a hug, they'll kind of fall into you. Or if you get down on their level, they'll look into your eyes. And you know how most kids are. They, even the ones that are a little rambunctious, they still have that, they just want to hug you and they need that love and they need that affirmation. Well, these kids have this disorder where that's not natural for them and they can't do it. And their lack of love and their lack of attention has led them to this place of unimaginable disconnection from love. So we can see the power of not being loved and how that can just have devastating effects. Conversely, we can see the power of receiving amazing grace and love and how that can deeply affect the soul. 
how when you look at someone, you don't see the fact that they're offensive in their language. You don't see that they're dumb in the way they, they, they live their life. And you don't, you, don't, you don't hate them. You look at that person, not with moral superiority, but you look at them with grace and you say, how can I go above and beyond to show you love so that you might know the amazing grace that I know? See, Christianity should not make you a hard curmudgeon, a morally superior snot. It should make you a gracious, loving person who is more likely to give grace than to slander, who's more likely to be gentle than harsh, who is more likely to be a peacemaker than someone who quarrels. And to be someone when they meet you and they see you and they see your faith, that they say, man, there's something different there. And hopefully when we come to church and we hear God's word taught and we get rebuked and we get exhorted to do things and we were reminded of who we ought be and we're reminded of the gospel, hopefully when we come expectantly, we will leave with greater love for God and love for other people. And if you're not leaving with love, more love for other people, then you're not hearing the gospel because you and I are dead in our sins and we are liable for hell and we are deserving of God's wrath at all times, but praise be to God. He met us in our need. His grace appeared and he washes us and he made us new and he gave us the spirit and the spirit's renewing us and he's given us sonship and we're right with God. And so I don't have to fear God. I can come to God and I can pray to God. And I open my arms up and I said, God, I love you. And he's not looking at me as anything else, but a saint in Christ. And he sees Christ and I'm a part of the family. I, I have a place, I have a home and all of that is not my own. It's his. And amazing grace makes people amazingly gracious. May that be true. Would you, just, would you just stand? We need to pray standing because God is good and his grace is amazing. Father, we come believing in amazing grace, thankful for it. We pray that we would walk in truth and grace. And Lord, we pray, I pray for this body of believers that you would be gracious to us and that you would cause your face to shine upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.